All right, today we are continuing in our series on the book of Romans. Today, looking at chapter 7, the spiritual warfare within us. Last week, I told you this uh, story, and I want to come back to that because it's very important for laying a foundation. This is from Andre So, and she is talking about victory over sin in her life. And here's what she said in World Magazine a few years back. She said, I was sitting down to write a column about something or other when I noticed a vague gnawing at my insides. It had been going on for some time. I'd been trying to ignore it or to live with it. The sin I was entertaining was covetousness. I traced its onset to a single sentence in a letter received that day. I was not bothering to wage war on it because of both self-protection and unbelief. We don't believe it will do any good to resist. We don't believe God can or will do anything about our bondage. We've been told that we should not expect much now. Where our minds drift to when alone, that is rubber meets the road reality. And Jesus came to deal with it. By deal with it, do you mean just forgive it? Or do you mean nuke it? There is the $64,000 question. How much personal sanctification is available in this lifetime? Where is the ceiling? Just forensic forgiveness, just, you know, on paper? Or is it being transformed from one degree to another in a way that your husband or wife would notice the difference? In a way that you could sit at your computer and be free? Is there a doctor in the house who can teach spiritual warfare? Is there anyone who believes it does any good? This is Romans 7. Romans 7 is addressing this exact problem. And so today we're going to look at three parts to chapter 7. And each part is very, very good, very, very interesting and fascinating. And each part is very important for our battle, the battle that we feel on the inside between right and wrong. All right, so we're going to start out by looking at an analogy. And this is like the remarried widower and widow analogy from the opening of chapter 7. And then we're going to look at the law, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. And we're going to see it as like a a rose-colored dream that actually carried with it a dreaded death sentence. And that's how Romans 7 speaks about it. And then we're going to look at a description of the two selves, the two eyes that we experience when we're in this spiritual warfare on the inside of our conscious awareness. All right, so here's the theology that I just want to lay out before you as we look at the analogy, the metaphor of the widower and widow who remarry. All right, here's the theology behind this, and we'll look at it in just a moment. Remember that from Exodus to Calvary, Exodus because that's when the Mosaic Law was given, right? Moses got the Ten Commandments. Exodus until Calvary, when Jesus died on the cross, humanity was, in this analogy, married to the Mosaic Law, obligated to obey its patriarchy. The law was boss. All right. That meant that uh, all of humanity was living under its frequent frown because nobody was measuring up to the law very well. So we're married to a law, but the law and we are not exactly the same. And it also means that we lived our whole lives in those days, humanity, teetering on the brink of abandonment and even hell because we could see that we didn't measure up. How then would we be saved? And even Christ, remember became a human being, and he had to live under the law. So when you're reading about the birth of Jesus and his childhood and his young manhood, you're reading essentially the Old Testament. Jesus was obligated to fulfill the law as a perfect human being. And, of course, he did. 
Jesus never broke any of Moses' laws. He was accused of breaking the Sabbath, but he didn't actually break the Sabbath. He broke their man-made rules about the Sabbath, but he didn't ever break any of the laws of the Old Testament. All right, so then comes Calvary. At Calvary, Christ died and was released from the patriarchy of the law. In other words, Christ doesn't have to obey the law anymore. He's released from the patriarch of the law. And in fact, he fulfilled the law. Then he rose from death to a new realm of life with the Father. And as we learn in the book of Romans and elsewhere in the New Testament, we actually died with Christ that day. You say, well, in what sense did we die with Christ? Well, your sins were with him, right? Your sins were laid on him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He himself bore our sins in his own body. So your sins were with Christ when he died on the cross that day, weren't they? And not only that, when he came up from death, we were with him then too, because our wealth was with him. And in the accounts of heaven, it's as if our sins were placed on Christ when he died on the cross that day, as if we were there. And when he came up, our wealth was in his hands, righteousness imputed to us forever and ever. Furthermore, when we became Christians, when we were converted, when we first believed the gospel, now his Holy Spirit has baptized us into his body, the church, and we have the spirit-empowered body of Christ enveloping us in his wonderful power and grace, and that's how we live. So since Calvary, and this is what the opening of chapter 7 explains, since Calvary, after both Christ and we with Christ were released from death, uh, the patriarchy of the law, we were also married to Christ. You think, oh, that's a little weird, huh? Married to Christ. And given an unearthly connection, like his spirit, is in your body. That's a supernatural connection. So you're married to Christ, given a supernatural, unearthly connection with him, and now the law, with its frowns and threats, is just a distant memory. All right, so that's the theology. Here's what the analogy sounds like. Romans 7.1. Do you not know, brethren, you know Jewish people, because they know all about the law. Do you not know, brothers, for I speak to those who know the law, how the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. And remember, Jesus was a man, so he had to obey the Old Testament law, which he did. The law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So here's the analogy part in verse 2. For the woman, any woman, who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband is dead, she's released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she's married to another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband is dead, she is not an adulteress, though she is married to another man. Therefore, into the analogy, in the same way, brothers, you also have become dead to the law by the body of Christ. You died. And of course, Christ died and you died with Christ. And now you're dead. So the, the marriage to the law, the patriarchy of the law is broken. Christ died. You were crucified with Christ. You're not married to the law anymore. So you also have become dead to the law by the body of Christ. That you should be married to another. Married to Christ. Married to whom? Married to the one who was raised from the dead. So we used to be married to the law. 
But then we died and we died with Christ and Christ rose. And we rose with Christ to a new world where the law is not our partner anymore. Death has severed that. Married to another, even to him who is raised from dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. And that's like childbearing, right? Bringing forth fruit, bringing forth children, children of righteousness. That idea of bringing forth good deeds now that we have uh, been married to Christ. And a little bit more in verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, and remember, everybody was in the flesh. That is, the only life they had was the life of their bodies. And when their bodies died, they didn't have spiritual life. Of course, they could go to heaven on credit. Salvation was on credit in Old Testament days. But just to know this, anybody who is not born again has no spiritual life. And nobody's born again until Acts 2, right? So when we were in the flesh, everybody before Acts 2 and since Acts 2, those who choose not to be born again. For before regeneration, the emotions, the passions of sin did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law with its frown and its threats. We're delivered from the law that being dead, wherein we were once held, We should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The old law patriarchy was kind of a downer because we never measured up. But now we're married to him who is raised from the dead and we serve in newness of spirit. I mean, this is great. He's given us an unearthly connection with him. And that is where we've been. So to recap, here's what we've looked at so far. From Exodus to Calvary, humanity was married to the Mosaic law with all its reprimands and threats. And even Jesus had to obey the patriarchy of the Mosaic law. And he did perfectly obey it. At Calvary, Christ died and was released from the patriarchy of the law. And we died and rose with him, right, as heaven's sin ledger indicates and as our new being in christ indicates we died and rose with him and since calvary then we've been married to christ that means we've been given an unearthly degree of connection with him by his holy spirit dwelling in us and the old testament frowns and threats are just a distant memory to us we never worry about those things anymore all right that's the analogy now, the law. What about the law? The law is being described here. It's, it's like a rose-colored dream that carried with it a death sentence, which is always a threat. It's frightening. So, here's where we're going to go. And again, I'll show you the verses in just a moment. But remember this. that Some people say, well, the Old Testament's threats and reprimands were too harsh. They were overstated. Like, you really don't have to do such harsh punishments, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You really don't have to do such harsh punishments, do you? But the Old Testament laws were perfect. They're not overly harsh, and they're not overstated. The law is truly good. We're going to see this as we look at the text. The law is truly good. As a matter of fact, the law would lead to paradise if we would just do it. So, you know... Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. You know, what would it be like if people obeyed the Mosaic law? The answer is, it would be like Jesus when he was here because he obeyed it perfectly. Now, what if everybody did? What if the whole world acted like Jesus? What if just the Jewish 
nation was all just like Jesus. Well, that would have been paradise. There's nothing wrong with the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law is paradise. How wonderful is that? And every thoughtful person can see that integrity is better than theft, right? And faithfulness in marriage is better than a broken marriage. And loving a neighbor is better than bullying or ignoring a neighbor. I mean, this is paradise. Anybody can see that. The bad news is all those lofty laws of the Mosaic era just demonstrated beyond dispute that we are all unceasingly offensive to God because we don't obey the laws very well. We see that the paradise is like a mirror and a magnifying glass. And it shows us all the ways we are not fit for paradise. And we also see that as soon as a baby is born, and this is true, right? As soon as a baby is born, as soon as he learns any of the regulations of God, we start reprimanding him for not obeying them well enough. And the law was not just a reprimand, right? The law said, you're going to go to hell if you don't get this right. So we would need redemption. But we'd always wonder, are we okay? Are we doing a good job? And the law always had sort of a threat and a frown attached to it. And not an empty threat, right? And then you see the rose-colored dream just sort of dissipates then. And it becomes a death sentence for us. Because we know that with all our irritability and our desire for luxury and our wandering eyes and our covetous heart and our inability to get along with people because we want to control them and all those things, if we were let into paradise, we would ruin it. Too bad. Well, here's what it sounds like in Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin with its frown and its threats? Like, no. God forbid. May God never allow such a thought. The law is not sin. The law is paradise. No, it's not sin. It's not bad. I would not have known sin but by the law. I didn't even know how I was supposed to act. For I had not known lust, for example, except the law had said, you should not covet. You're not allowed to do that. It's like, oh, in paradise, we don't do that. Okay, so now I get it. Verse 8, but sin, taking occasion by the commandment, worked in me all manner of lust. The more regulations I saw, the more times I failed. For without the law, sin was dead. I never would have broken any laws if there weren't any laws. Verse 9, for I was alive without the law once as a baby. Of course, the law was given 1,400 years before Paul was ever born. So the law was there, but he was a baby. He didn't know about it. I was alive without the law once when I was a baby. But when the commandment came, when I learned it, sin revived. I disobeyed the rule. And then I had the death sentence on me. This isn't working out at all. Verse 10, And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. I'm not fit for paradise. I need redemption. In verse 11, For sin taking occasion by the commandment, so the commandment comes, and then sin tempts me to break that commandment. And if I had a hundred commandments, I'd be tempted to break a hundred of them. So sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me. And by it killed me. Now the sentence of death is on me. Verse 12, therefore the law is holy, 
and the commandment is holy and just and good, it's paradise. Well, was then that which is good made death to me? It's not the law's fault. God forbid. Don't even let a thought like that come into your mind. But sin, that it might appear as sin, mirroring my flaws and magnifying them. Uh, Have you seen the makeup mirrors that the ladies sometimes have? It's very discouraging. Sin, that it might appear sin, bigger and looking right at me, is always working death in me by that which is good. This is paradise. But I don't live up to it. I can't go to paradise. That sin by the commandment, my ugly sin, lying side by side with a paradise commandment, that sin by the commandment would be seen clearly as exceeding sinful. That's the law. So here's the recap of that section of Romans 7. The extreme, to us they seem extreme, the extreme reprimands and threats of the Old Testament would have made possible a paradise-like world. It would have been a whole nation, if it was Jewish people, a whole nation of people living just like Jesus. What could possibly be better than that? And then, as Gentiles came to know the Lord, they would live like Jesus. And we have a whole world of paradise that would be so great. But as soon as any baby is old enough to learn any of the regulations, he starts to be reprimanded because he's not living up to them. And threatened with hell because that's what not going to God's paradise means. You're going to need redemption. So the regulations of paradise just prove that we are all unceasingly offensive to God. And we would just ruin paradise if we were allowed to enter into it. We'd bring all this drama that doesn't belong in paradise. So where does that leave us? The third part of Romans 7 talks about the spiritual warfare within us and the battle is real. We're going to see that there are two eyes, two selves, two sides to your personality. And this is what instigates all the spiritual warfare that you feel within your soul. Two passions surge within my breast. One is foul, the other blessed. One I love and one I hate. The one I feed will dominate. That's the war within. There really are two selves in every person. We're going to see that. Uh, One is convinced that integrity and kindness are always the best policy in principle. But then there's another side of you. And that side totally abandons integrity and kindness over and over again. Again, in practice. So in our own minds, you ask even really bad people. Al Capone, for example, he always said that what he was doing was to help people. (laughs) Well, he was a pretty bad guy. Well, in every person's mind, he always says, I'm basically a good person. And that's because he feels the pangs of conscience, at least from time to time. In our minds... We are all good people in theory, but it all falls apart in practice. Here is the good I that's talked about in Romans chapter 7. Notice, for what I wish, I have this wish. It's a lofty, wonderful paradise wish. For what I wish 
This I do not do. But what I hate, that I do. If then, verse 16, if then I do that which I do not wish, I agree with the law that is good. Of course. Integrity and kindness are always the best policy. I agree. In verse 17, now then is no more I that do it when I sin. You know, it's like a different person. I don't even know where that guy came from. I don't know why he sinned. Verse 18, to wish, is present with, to wish to do the right thing. I do. I wish to do the right thing. We all do. We all say that. Verse 19, the good that I wish, I do wish it. I, I do will it to be part of my life. The good that I wish, I do not do. The evil which I do not wish to do, that I do. Now, verse 20, if I do that which I do not wish to do, it's no more eyes. Like, it's not even me. I don't even know where that came from. People say that all the time. I, don't, I can't even believe I did that. That's what they say. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God. Like, oh yeah, it's paradise. Integrity and kindness are always the best policy. I delight in that. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm for it. Verse 25, so then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. I do, I do. I wish it. I agree with it. I delight in it. That's how it is. That's me. You've just described me. Well, here's the bad I. Same problem. I am fleshly, sold under sin. Flesh has no concern for the invisible things because the flesh is tangible, touchable, physical. I'm not concerned about invisible things as I should be, the spiritual things. And flesh is not concerned about eternal things because your body's only live, what, 85 years and then you're done. So I'm not concerned about the invisible things or the eternal things. Problem is, those are the most important things of all. And Paul says, I'm fleshly sold under sin. A real I. I am fleshly sold under sin. Verse 15, what I wish this, I do not do. I don't do it. Verse 16, if then I do that which I wish, some more I that do it, but sin dwells in me. Like, there's a problem inside me. Sin dwells in me. Verse 18, in me, that is in my flesh, in my body, dwells no good thing. There's something wrong with me. Verse 19, the good that I wish, I do not do. So that's the bad eye. I don't do it. I know. I don't. The evil which I wish not to do, I do that. I do evil. The real eye, I, I do evil. Verse 21, I find that a law, evil is present with me. It's like it's always on me. I can never get away from it. It's just always there. Evil is present with me. Verse 23, I see another law within my members. A law being a strong directive. Who is telling me to do this? I see the other law within my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. This like strong directive of sin. Do the sin, do the sin, do the sin. Oh, I'm in captivity to this. It's the real eye. And it's a bad eye. In captivity to the law of sin, which is within my members. There's a problem inside me. So what we see in Romans 7 here is that there really are two selves in every person. There's the good I and the bad I, and that never ends. Even when you're a Christian, you feel this battle within. And Paul is using present tenses here. He said, this is the way it is in the present tense for me. I feel these things. Our righteous wish, remember he kept using the word wish, it's the same as will, you know, uh, I, I will to do a certain thing. 
my last will and testament is my last wishes and my uh, contract for my last wishes. So our righteous wish, I wish to do the right thing. It's mentioned in verse 15, verse 16, verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, verse 21. I wish it. I do truly wish it. It's the real I. I truly wish it. It's paradise. So our righteous wish and our agreement with the law, because verse 16 says, I agree with the law. I consent unto the law that it is good. This is paradise. I, I get it. Yeah. I mean, integrity and kindness are always the best policy. I agree. So our righteous wish and our agreement with the law and our delight in the law. Verse 20, I delight in the law of God. Of course, integrity and kindness, I'm for it. I delight in that. It's always the best policy. But then this collides in a life and death combat with our physical body of death. Oh, miserable man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And inside the body, a law working. A body that harbors indwelling sin because verse 20 says, the sin dwells in me. It's on the inside. I have an interior problem. So the good things collide with the body of death harboring indwelling sin and an internal law. Of sin, actually called the law of sin, the law of sin which is within my members in verse 23. This unceasing clash is what you feel in times of temptation, and the battle is real. Paul says it makes us miserable. Oh, wretched man that I am. We would say, oh, miserable person that I am. I hate that this is going on. And uh, of course, you have to bear in mind. That while Paul says he is experiencing all of this, this I, I did not want to do evil and I did it anyway. But bear in mind that Paul was pretty wonderful. I mean, evidently, by the time we get to this stage of Paul's experience, his evil is not characteristic of him. He must have flashes of evil, but he's a pretty great guy. When he's ready to die, he said, the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. He's pretty great. So it shouldn't be like, oh yeah, I guess Paul was falling into adultery. He was probably stealing things, getting all liquored up on Saturday nights. Uh, No. When he says, the good that I wish to do, I don't do. We're talking about a pretty high standard of good. And the evil that I don't want to do, I don't do. Um, He is scrutinizing his life evidently pretty carefully. So you shouldn't assume that Christians just have to, are bound to fall into gross sin. Never assume that. The battle we will all feel all of our lives. But as we said in previous weeks, is utter madness to think that there's no deliverance in Christ. And that's what you see in the yellow font here. Deliverance from this internal warfare is only possible through the Lord Jesus. And we say only possible, but also want to add, and truly possible. So, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then there's the answer. I thank God for his deliverance through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, the Lord will deliver me. You can be delivered. The battle is going to be there. 
but not the defeat, at least potentially, not the defeat. In Christ, in his accounts, I am delivered, rescued from the punishment of sins. Do you know why, as a believer, you will not be punished for your sins? As we talked about in previous weeks, is because your sins were laid on Christ at the cross. And Christ died for those sins. Your accounts, imputation is the doctrine, your sin was set on Christ and he died to pay for it. And Christ's righteousness is set on you. And Christ's righteousness is infinite. When your accounts are merged, that's imputation. When your accounts are merged, then Jesus' utter infinite righteousness totally covers and obliterates your sins because though your sins are dark and many, they are not infinite. But Christ's righteousness is infinite. So your accounts are merged. Martin Luther used to tell people that they should say this little prayer. Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness and I am your sin. You became what you were not that I might become what I was not. You set upon yourself what was mine and took upon yourself, uh, set upon me what was thine. It's this wonderful transaction, transfer. You became what you were not, a sinner, sin laid on you at the cross, that I might become what I was not, a saint. That's why in Christ you have your sins merged with Christ's righteousness and you're delivered from the punishment of sin. But that's not all. Remember, we started with the illustration. Andreas So says, so is it just for forensic forgiveness, just on paper, just in the accounts of heaven's ledgers? Not just. Because in Christ, we are baptized into his body, into a spirit-empowered body. And now we have spiritual power because of that. I am delivered not just from the punishment of sin. I'm delivered from the dictatorship of sin. The Lord has given me power to successfully resist the temptations that come along in life. From chapter 7, verse 25, uh, remember we have this, that our deliverance is truly in Christ Jesus. And notice how many times this has come up now as uh, we've gone through the last three chapters. Actually, next week as well, chapter 8. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? There is victory. We don't have to sin. In chapter 6, verse 3, as many of us as were baptized, immersed into Jesus Christ's accounts, were baptized into his death. There, as Christ was raised up from the dead, we also should walk in newness of life. There's newness, new creature, new power, baptized into this powerful new experience. Our old man, that's our old personality, our capacity to resist sin, our identity, our destiny. Our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that we should no longer serve sin. We're not under the dictatorship of sin anymore because Christ has put in our bodies his Holy Spirit to help us resist sin. Chapter 6, verse 7. He that is dead, you know, in Christ's accounts, is freed from sin. 
Count yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. We don't have to sin. We're not under the dictatorship of sin. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You don't have to. In chapter 6, verse 13, neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness. You don't have to. There's no dictatorship here. You don't have to. But do yield yourselves unto God. It's the right thing to do. You choose. It's the right thing to do. Chapter 6, verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. There's no dictatorship anymore. You don't have to. Chapter 6, verse 18, being then made free from sin, no dictatorship here. Chapter 6, verse 22, being made free from sin, same thing. Chapter 7, verse 4, you be undead to the law with its frown and its threats because you're clean. Your accounts are merged with the Lord's infinite righteousness. You become dead to the law's frowns and threats by the body of Christ. They should be married to another. You have a new marriage. You are going to now walk in newness of life, serve with newness of spirit. Chapter 7, verse 5. When we were in the flesh, the emotions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. That's how it used to be. But now, verse 6, we're delivered from the law, the threats and the frowns of the law, that being dead wherein we were held, was serving newness of spirit. Isn't that great? We're not under the threat and frown of Jesus. We're married to Jesus. And he has given us an unearthly degree of connection with him. Isn't that great? In verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law, the reign of sin and death. Chapter 8, verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. There's no dictatorship here. We can do this. It's fulfilling us in heaven's ledger the accounts being merged, imputation in heaven. But it's also fulfilled in us because sin is not our dictator anymore. We can do better. In chapter 8, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And that's cannot in the sense of they don't have the ability to please God. They can't. But you're not in the flesh. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, you're not in the flesh. You have the ability to please God. So, Christ's indwelling spirit gives us the capacity to successfully resist temptation. That's true. If you'll follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, and the leading of the Holy Spirit is going to bring you to escapes from temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 There is no temptation overtaking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able to bear, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. You can escape it. It's not your dictator, sin, temptation. You don't have to follow that. Remember last week we were talking about Becky Tirabassi, and I wanted to bring up her case again. Uh, if you are with us last week, you know she's been sober for 45 years now. She's been married for 45 years now, is doing quite well in her Christian walk. Now, when she first gave up alcohol, she moved back to her hometown, wanted to live in the house of her parents, and her mom was a believer. Now, notice what happens here. We're talking about the Holy Spirit giving you a way to escape your temptations. Uh, Her mom, when she comes back home, Mom, I'd like to live here. I'm straightening my life out. I'm following Jesus now. And she says, that's wonderful, dear. And we are glad you've come home. But like Susie, Becky says, she sounded a little doubtful. And I didn't blame her for that. She seemed willing to give me a chance to prove myself. And I was grateful for that. I determined to show her that I had indeed changed. I'm not going to be an alcoholic anymore. Now notice this part. 
I saw more doubt in her eyes later that day when I told her I was going to my old stomping grounds to see all my friends that night. But she didn't say anything. But there was doubt in her eyes. Do you know why? Because there has no temptation overtaking you, but such as is common to man. I mean, we've all been there. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able to bear, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. But maybe the way to escape was not to go to those old stomping grounds with her drinking friends. And mom knows it. So mom isn't saying anything. But there's doubt in her eyes. And so there should be. Remember the story from last week? She went out with her friends. They got together at somebody's house. Drinks were being served. She said, no, I don't drink anymore. And at first they wondered. But then the conversation shifted and they're fine. Say, well, how about if we just go out again next time? Which was, I think, the next day. This time they go to a swanky restaurant. She orders wine. She hasn't tasted alcohol in several weeks. She orders wine. It comes in a big glass, a big serving of wine. And she said it tasted so delicious. And then she thought, well, I can have just one more. And then she had a little bit of a buzz. And that's how she went home. When she got home, she knew that her mom, also a Christian, has a jug of wine in her cabinet. She thought, oh, maybe just one more glass before bed and then another. And then she finished the whole jug. And she said, when I looked at the empty jug sitting on the floor beside me, I knew I was drunk and I cried myself to sleep. The tone of my prayer changed from pleading to accusing as I changed the subject. What happened last night, God? I thought you took away all the desire to drink, but I was drunk again. You know, what about this dictatorship being broken? Doesn't seem very broken to me. I felt angry and disillusioned with God. And then it hit me. God really had taken away my desire to drink. Unless I drank. Then the alcohol took control. For me, there was no such thing as moderation. And that thought scared me. I realized for the first time how different my life was going to have to be. The way to escape is sometimes hours or days before the temptation crisis actually comes. There is a way to escape the dictatorship of sin. You don't have to do this anymore. But the escape is not always given in the moment of your crisis. Christ's indwelling spirit gives you the capacity to overcome temptation if you allow no opportunity for the devil or the flesh to ambush you. Because if you allow an opportunity, it will pounce. And that's why we have these twin passages in the New Testament. Ephesians 4.27, neither give a place to the devil. Don't give him a place to infiltrate. You leave him any place at all, and he'll leverage that. He'll set up a base of operations. You can't give him any place at all. No invitation at all. And the same thing with the flesh. Remember when we were talking about chapter 7 of Romans, there's something wrong with me, in me. Yeah, that's the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not make a provision for the flesh, an opportunity for the flesh to fulfill the lust of it. No opportunity. You put those together, no place for the devil, no provision for the flesh. There just can't be any unlocked doors. Guard up. Here are places for the devil. Here are provisions for the flesh. This is what it means to miss out on the way of escape. Protecting your privacy. 
that's a place for the devil to infiltrate. Protecting your privacy is a provision for the flesh, an opportunity, a window of opportunity for the flesh. As believers, we have very little interest in privacy. If you protect your privacy over much, you watch, there's a problem. If a 16-year-old girl tells her parents, you stay out of my room, it's private, there's something wrong with that. If we are protecting our privacy, there's probably a problem. Rather do it this way, I say it from time to time. Somebody should be able to hire a private investigator to follow you around and take pictures and that private investigator should be totally bored. Be what you seem to be. We don't need privacy. We don't want privacy. We want transparency. This is a place for the devil, a provision for the flesh. When you're experimenting with mind-impairing substances or the forces of false religion. When you're being alone with attractive individuals. When you're socializing with violent or angry people. When you're socializing with substance-impaired friends or strangers. That's a place for the devil. That's a provision for the flesh. When you're socializing very late at night. Not a lot of good things happen very late at night. When you're doing business with those who deceive people or do criminal acts, those are all examples of provisions for the flesh, of opportunities for the devil. And you should know that your way of escape is probably a long ways from anything on that list. If you constantly renew your focus on the true and lovely things of God, then you'll find the dictatorship of sin is truly broken in your practice and not just in your theory. John 8, 32, as Jesus is saying, the truth shall make you free. And that's what we need. Ephesians 6, 14, the great uh, spiritual warfare passage, tells us, stand having your hips built, uh, belted about with truth. What we need is truth. Your feet strapped under with the good news of peace. Your Focus on truth. Focus on the good news of peace. And faith to extinguish all the fiery arrows of the wicked one. Focus on things of faith. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, we're going to focus on the Word of God. Praying always, we're going to focus on prayer. And every time we start to do the wrong thing, the flash of temper, the flash of bad thoughts about girls, the flash of love of money, the flash not well down the path, the flesh, then we immediately redirect our focus to the things that are true. Philippians 4, 8. The things that are true and lovely, think on these things. The flesh, immediately. That's how you do it. F.E. Meyer, well-known minister in about 1900. He's sitting together with other ministers and this old minister says, I have a story to tell you that's pretty interesting. I had a group of boys in my church who were misbehaving. I was about ready to lose my temper at them and I have a history of losing my temper and I hate it. You know, Romans 7, I hate that. And so about the time I was ready to unleash my temper on these mischievous boys, the thought occurred to me that I should pray for deliverance from that temper. And so I said, Lord, give me your patience because mine is giving out. He said when he prayed that prayer, remember, whatever things are true and lovely, think on those things. 
when he redirected the focus of his thoughts to the Lord and things that matter, invisible and eternal things, he said, in a moment, my anger melted away. He said, it was astonishing, and I decided I should do that for the rest of my life. So, F.B. Meyer and Samuel Wilberforce woke up the next morning. They were you know, doing an overnight thing at Samuel Wilberforce's substantial estate. And uh, they said, he says, when we met the next morning, Wilberforce and I confessed that the old clergyman's experience should henceforth be our own. We would see temptation as an opportunity for the fresh claiming of the life of our risen Lord. Because we're reading over there in Romans, we don't have to sin, right? We don't have to cave into this. So how about if we try it? Well, then... Amy Carmichael, famous missionary, was talking to F.B. Meyer, and she learned about this. And so she said that the specific prayer that F.B. Meyer told her about was, Thy sweetness, Lord, like I was going to get all out of temper. And so I said, Lord, give me your sweetness. So here's what she says. Take the opposite of your temptation and look up inwardly, naming the opposite. Untruth, thy truth, Lord. Unkindness, thy kindness, Lord. Impatience, thy patience, Lord. Selfishness, thy selfishness, Lord. Roughness, thy gentleness, Lord. Discourtesy, thy courtesy, Lord. Resentment, inward heat, fuss, thy sweetness, Lord. Thy calmness, thy peacefulness. I think that no one who tries this very simple plan will ever give it up. It takes for granted, of course, that all is yielded, the I dethroned. Will all to whom it is new try it for a day, a week, a month, and test it? There's no risk, right? You feel road rage? The moment it flashes in your mind, Lord, give me your sweetness. And you watch. That sweetness will come. Now, just so you won't be discouraged, if we're talking about hard things, anxiety, depression, it doesn't melt away so quickly. We're talking about flashes of sin. Those things don't always melt away so quickly, but the strategy is the same. It's just with those sins, you're going to have to do this like a hundred times a day. And if you're really upset, a hundred times an hour. So one more story and I'm done. In May 2001, missionaries Martin and Gracia Burnham were celebrating their 18th wedding anniversary uh, they're missionaries, and they went to a resort in the Philippines. There they were abducted by Muslim terrorists, and they uh, were not released for more than a year. Finally, uh, some rescuers came to release them, and they weren't very good shots, and they killed Martin with one of their friendly fire bullets, and they shot Gracia in the leg, uh, but she was rescued after all. She says there was this one particular time when they were hiking. Oh, and by the way, she says this was a very hard time because uh, they're getting dysentery. They had terrible food, no sleep, terrible conditions. So she was grouchy. And then this guy, Mossad, required Marcia, uh, Gracia, and Martin to carry his supplies just because he didn't want to. So she's kind of upset. And um, she says, the real me started to surface. And it was shocking. 
I would lie awake at night planning the awful speeches I would make once I get out of here uh, against terrorists, against the resort security, against the Filipino government, against the U.S. government. She's going to set everybody straight. She's all upset. This is all God's fault, she thought, and blaming God started this downward spiral into depression and feeling totally helpless. Now, on this day when she had to carry Mossad's supplies, she said, I told Martin, Mossad's going to burn in hell one day, and I hope I'm there to see it. And Martin looked at me with a shocked look on his face. He said, Gracia, that's exactly what's going to happen to Mossad if he doesn't have a change of heart. But can you imagine witnessing the wrath of God poured out on a person? I mean, even thinking that should make you pray for Musab and not hate him. And she listened to that. She said, when you finally figure out that we're all the same awful sinners before God and greatly in need of forgiveness ourselves, we can start to forgive others. And we started praying for Musab. And you know what I found out? When you're praying for someone, you can't hate them anymore. It's interesting. Just change your focus. Sin doesn't have to be your dictator. I mean, you can choose to yield yourselves to sin if that's what you're going to do. But you don't need to. There's no dictatorship in here anymore. You're free from that. And you can change the direction of your focus. Yes, you can. So here's our conclusion. The Old Testament law was like a rose-colored dream that humanity could never live up to. And failure carried a death sentence. But enveloped in Christ's accounts, married... The reprimands and threats of the law are like a distant memory to us. We don't have to worry about the reprimands and threats of the law anymore. We're heaven-bound saints. Even now, however, there are two eyes, the good eye and the bad eye, in every person battling for dominance. But enveloped in Christ's power, and we are, we are delivered from the dictatorship of sin, and God is unceasingly providing for every one of us a way of escape from every temptation that comes along. My sin debts immersed in Christ's infinite righteousness. My capacity to resist sin immersed in Christ's spirit-empowered body and vine. This is deliverance. Oh, miserable man that I am, who shall deliver me? I thank God for that deliverance through Jesus Christ our Lord. So how about if we stand and be dismissed with prayer? If there's any particular sin in your life right now that you know is calling the shots, dictating, and you haven't been taking the Lord's way of escape, I'd like to give you just a moment to examine your heart and commit that thing to the Lord because you can overcome that sin. And it would be madness for us to live with it when we don't need to. Now, dear Lord, we all live in a generation where our friends are deconverting and deconstructing, when scandals are everywhere, when it's just expected that the church people are the same as the people who don't go to church. I pray that all of us in this room right now would say, not here. Not, not in my life, not on my watch. I pray that we would confess to you the reality of what we've seen today in your word, that we are delivered from the dictatorship and we're not going to follow that dictatorship anymore by your grace. 
with your help because of your deliverance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.